Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Hey, welcome to American Potential, another edition. And, and as you know, we try to tell stories of people breaking barriers. A lot of times, government-imposed barriers, but in some cases, it's barriers that people Im- impose upon themselves and overcoming those. And, you know, redemption stories give people hope because they show us that no one has to stay in the circumstances that they're currently in. And today's guest has one of those stories because he went from being a law-breaking, homeless drug addict to now running a nonprofit that gives others an opportunity to have a successful path out of that lifestyle. Now, his journey started at a very young age, and over time, he found himself living a lifestyle that had him in and out of jail. It wasn't until one day in jail, he read a quote from the Dalai Lama, which changed his mindset and the direction his life was headed. While he was in a sober living facility, he went to the gym, was taking college classes, and working as a handyman. Through this process, he found out he liked working with people, and he moved to Reno, Nevada to take a job. Now, while he was in Reno, he started a nonprofit called Karma Box, which offers help to people at different points of their journey, from simple everyday items that are donated to the homeless to a program called GRIT, which stands for Grow, Refine, Integrate, and Thrive. Our guest provides opportunities for others to start their journey away from homelessness and addiction. I want to welcome Grant Denton, the founder of Karma Box. Grant, thanks for being with us. Thank you, brother, for having me. Yeah, so what what an amazing story. I want people to first, let's get into your story. Um, now, I understand, though, before uh, we get into all of that, Monica, who's our producer, sent me these notes. It says, when you were six and seven, you were in ballet. And yeah. when you were 21 to 40 to 24, you were a fire breather in nightclubs on the Vegas Strip. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now you got to tell us that because those are very different. So the, when I was uh, six years, I came in, a, I came out of a large family. There was eight okay. siblings. I had two older brothers and they were close in age. And me and my sister were close in age. And there's seven boys and one girl. So my sister was the only girl and she was my playmate. And so I play with dolls. We would, we would braid hair, we would dance. And, uh, and I liked ballet. And so uh-huh. my mom actually said it as a joke. She was like, does anybody else want to go to ballet class when she signed my sister up? And I was like, I want to. And so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I was in ballet and it was great. <laughs> okay. And, well, and then, and the, then the fire breather, tell me about that. The fire breathing. I actually was, when I was 21, I had transit. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was partying a lot, and I was selling ecstasy in nightclubs in the Las Vegas Strip. And I met a guy, and him and I, you know, on ecstasy, like after you, or maybe you don't know. I don't know, but I don't ecstasy, know. <laughs> you can become best friends with just about anybody in about okay. 30 minutes. Okay. And we really, me and this, we really hit it off. We're best buds, and then we started hanging out, and we taught each other uh he taught me how to breathe fire and so on new year's <laughs> eve from going 1999 remember y2k right 1999 yeah, yeah, 2000 sure. the whole world was going to blow up and uh 
And so about that time, we it was it was New Year's, and we went into this club, and we snuck in our torches, and I was walking on stilts, and we snuck in fuel and torches, and on the countdown, we uh, we lit our torches on the dance floor, and three, two, one, boom, and we lit up the the, the whole club with fire, we're rolling flames off the ceiling, boom, boom. People are losing their crap, dude. They're freaking out. Some are liking it. Some are scared. And the security guards start running towards us. You know, all these retired football players are, they're, you know, they're <laughs> running at us, trying to grab us and usher us out of there. And as we're leaving, the the owner of the club stopped us and was like, "Hey, man, how much do you want to do that every Saturday?" And so we hired us from that point forward to do it every Saturday. And then we got gigs. Breathing fire on the strip at four different nightclubs, House of Blues, Babies, uh, Body English, you know, and all these the C2K wow. was one of the clubs. And, and so we did it for a living for about four years, just wow. traveling around wow. breathing fire. That's pretty amazing. Very different story than my my story. You know what I'm saying, Grant? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, that's awesome. I want folks to understand before we get into uh, Karma Box, I want, I want to have folks understand your story a little bit because it's a really compelling story. Tell, tell us about your journey in life. The long, to, the, you know, you try to abbreviate it. And as you, it's interesting is the more you grow, the more you identify that like little landmarks in your life, the impact that they had on you, you know, and especially if you're becoming more aware of things. And, but the, the long and short of of course, trauma, right? Childhood trauma. You're raised in a house with a dad that was very abusive to me and my brother. And then, when my mom would try to like, he would put hands on us. And when my mom would try to protect us, he would put hands on her. And it was this constant in and out, like where he would leave and then come back and leave and come back. And every time he came back, it was a promise of a new dad. And then, you know, and then the, then it would get back to what it was. And then there was this resentment towards your mother because why do you keep bringing this guy back? You know, and he, and he hurts all of us so much. And so it was this, you know, and then you, and then I was, uh, I had a trusted uh, a friend of the family, a trusted friend of the family abused me and um, sexually abused me for a whole summer. And when that happens, I was 11 years old. And when something like that happens, you either, you know, you either fold or you build a wall. And that was my FU wall, you know. And so you don't trust anybody. You don't trust parents. You don't trust churches. You don't trust teachers. You trust nobody, you know. And then, and so who do you trust and who do you learn from? Well, you learn from the guy right next to you, you know, and we were, I was raised in a, um, you know, lower income neighborhood. And so there was a lot of gangs and I just ran with these guys. I wanted these guys to like and respect me, you know, cause they took care of me. And, uh, and you know, when you, when you're, I don't even know if you remember the commercial back in the day where the guy's got an egg and he's like, this is your brain. He cracks it on a pan. He's like, this is your brain on drugs. He starts frying and he's like, any questions? And you're like, oh God, no, don't do drugs. It'll fry your brain. It's right. Drugs will fry your brain. They don't tell you the solution after you do drugs, right? It was just drugs are going to fry your brain. Don't do them. Well, and, and the answer to not doing drugs is just say no. And that makes sense, right? Just say no. It seems real simple to drugs. But when you're in a place that I was in and a lot of folks like me, you're not saying no to a drug, I was, when I first did drugs, it was with this guy, Danny, dude. And Danny was the homeboy. Danny was, he's the OG. And you wanted Danny to respect you if you ran with his crew. And Danny laid out some meth on a table at a party. And was like, hey, who's getting down? And of course I'm going to get down. I'm not saying, uh, I, you know, it's easier to say no to a drug than it is uh, to say to a person. 
right? And a crew. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be part of that crew. I wanted Danny to accept me. I mm-hmm. wanted to be, you know, be in the squad. And so, yeah, I did. It's, it's, it's hard to say no to people, you know, or, yeah. or, or belonging. And I wanted to be with, and so that was my first time doing meth when I was 14. And then through high school, of course, in and out of juvenile hall, uh, strong armed robberies, things like that. I got into doing an entertainment, but when I was working on the strips, I wasn't, um, that's not real adult stuff, dude. We're making, ended up making a lot of money and doing a lot of drugs and partying. It's not a real life application, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I transitioned from that and I had a kid with somebody and, uh, with a gal and I wanted to change my life. And so I stopped, stopped using, stopped partying, got a job as an electrician. And for two years, I kind of held it together. And then I think like a lot of stories where folks, um, transition right it was the it was in the 2007s 2006 we got married in 2005 when my son was born and it was about two years there where it was but then i was i i uh, I broke my hand i was getting pain pills and of course the usual path from pain pills to from you know you're you're taking them then you're snorting them then you're smoking them then you're injecting them then you change from shift from this and not that everybody goes through that path but it's a graduated path right especially if you're you know we're not our brains aren't broken we're just very efficient addicts right and so if if this drug is solving my problems seemingly right now then of course it's the answer to everything and you just graduate and you move up and it's we're being efficient. So why would I pay 30 bucks for one pill or 10 bucks for one pill when I can pay 10 bucks for a, for a whole gram, do you know? And so it like, mm-hmm. it makes sense to the individual at the time. And so before long, after two years of kind of having it cleaned up, I was losing jobs, uh, IV heroin and meth addicts trying to hold it together. Do you know, you end up in, cause you got a $150 day of habit. They're, you know, and you don't have any source of income. Well, yeah, you know, it doesn't make me a bad dude. It just, this is what I'm, what I have to do. And, uh, eventually from being on and off the streets in and out of the system, nine years, uh, doing this, I got locked up, was facing five to seven years for burglary and, uh, or yeah, for, for burglary and all the other charges that I was on probation for. And, um, and I was offered rehab. And when they offered me rehab, of course, I didn't want to go to rehab, but it was like rehab prison. Let's give the rehab a shot, you know? <laughs> sure. And so, and, and in that, and in that time waiting for rehab, because you're in jail eight months waiting for a bed to open up on the mountain. Um, I started to change. I started to read. I started to learn. I started to, of course, you know, doing a lot of pushups, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And it, and it, it changed me and I had a little paradigm shift and I read that from the Dalai Lama. The thing I read from the Dalai Lama was like, you're, it's, he says, you're not entitled to the fruits of your labor. The only thing you're entitled to is your labor. I was like, wow, if that's real, right? If you believe this then nobody owes me anything, I felt like this guy that molested me, he owed me something. My mom owed me something. My dad owes me like all these, the system owes me and nobody owes you anything. And, and if, and if all I, all I'm entitled to is my work. I'm going to take it. And then all the fruits are just gifts. So it makes sense. It's a simple mm-hmm. formula. I've been to rehab. I was going to 12 step meetings and that these things work for different folks. But what worked for me was shutting up, putting my head down. No one owes me anything. Go to work. Yeah. You know? And, and you call it a paradigm shift and it, it, mm-hmm. it really was in your life. I mean, and, and that's, there's so many people and I, 
I've always kind of call it the the victim or the victor mentality and, and yeah. what people have in their life. Um, you know, maybe is that the way you see it too, that maybe you viewed yourself as a victim, finally decided I'm going to be a victor and I'm going to grab what's mine. You know, by definition, I, I was a victim. I would have never said that. Yeah. I would just, I just, because I aggressively pointed fingers, you know, sure. I aggressively pointed fingers like you, you, and, but uh, yeah, I was, I, I was a victim and, and I really thought like that, but I it can't, it, and when I was locked up, you start processing these things, the cloud clears up a little bit. You start reading. I started meditating. I started to learn how to breathe through stuff. And I, and I realized that like, and through like this, reading these books with the, you know, about mindfulness and the Dalai Lama and stuff like that. It, like I learned that you're going to suffer no matter what, right? Like, I'm not, like you, I can suffer here on the streets with nothing or I can suffer and do stuff, you know, like right now there's a level of suffering when it comes to keeping this nonprofit moving. There's a level of suffering when it comes to parenting my teenage boys. There's a level of suffering when it's, when it comes to keeping up with the rest of the world. And so I can suffer here. I can suffer here. And, and, and I didn't, and then I bought into the idea that like, you don't need a happy life, right? Happy is an emotion. I don't want to think like, a lot of people that are like, I just want to be happy. You won't be happy all the time. And I don't want to feel like I'm failing if I'm not happy. So the idea is to have a meaningful life, drive yeah. towards something. And, and so that was my, when I got out, I was just, I was driven and aggressive as aggressive as i was on the streets like if i put all this energy if you look at it these guys that are living on the streets put a lot of energy into having nothing do you know and if i took yeah. that energy and transition it they call it the misfit the misfit economy where you take all these things that you know you're we're resilient when we're on the streets we're resourceful when we're on the streets and we're risk takers anybody that comes from the streets or anything has, has lived that kind of lifestyle or all these three things and if you transition that into a real life application, then you can climb pretty quick, especially if you're aggressive, you know, or yeah. assertive, whatever, yeah. you know. Right. So, so you had this, this shift, this paradigm shift in your life. Um, and, and obviously it really, really changed you. And by the way, your story is very foreign to me. I had a very different up, upbringing and it's really hard sometimes for our worlds to understand one another. Right. Like I, I think of it, I, I look at drugs, like be like, man, I would never want to be out of control of, of my mind or my life, you know, whatever, but we have to understand each other. And I think it's so great that, that someone like you is, you know, steps forward to help people because you have a greater impact in people's life because you've been through it. Right. I I can say silly things, but it's not going to really help anybody. You've lived it and you can have that great impact in other people's lives um, because of that, I think. So, um, but how did you end up in, in Reno and, and where did you start Karma Box? So I came out here to do sober living. Um, that's, I, I just, I, I, I want, I, that's all I wanted to do. I realized at one point it occurred to me that when I was active in my addiction, I'd caused so much damage to me, my people that love me, the community, just, I did so much damage that it, it only makes sense <clears throat> that I like have to, as a pillar of my, I'm not talking volunteer here and there. Like all I want to do is work in sober living helping people get clean. And, um, let, and let me ask you though, let me stop yeah. you there and let me ask you, cause there's lots of people who were in that same situation you were in, but they don't have that epiphany. They don't, they don't make that, that switch to like, okay, I want to live a different life. I want to live a better life. 
I want to live a meaningful life. What made you do it? What, 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 what in your mind or your soul made you change? Um, I, I had a mentor tell me that you need to go. I had a really good mentors. That was, that was it. I really like, mm-hmm. if you look at it, the best ideas that I could come up with got me homeless and addicted to drugs. I needed guidance. I needed somebody to coach mm-hmm. me and push me through. And I also had to have a willingness to shut up and listen, you know, and it, it sounds aggressive. I, I get it. You know, I, and there was, a, a, especially early on with being mentored, I was getting very upset with my mentor because every time they corrected me, I was taking it as them calling me, I would take it as them calling me stupid, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and I would get upset and aggressive with them and be like, what do you mean? You know? And so there's, there has to be all these things happening at once. And part of one of my, um, one of my mentors told me that you should go listen to somebody's somebody that was close to you when you were doing damage, right? You should go ask them their version of your story huh. and, uh, and don't correct them. Wow. Right. Don't say that. No, man, it wasn't the van that I stole. It was the credit card that I stole. Who cares? <laughs> Right. It's their version of your story and you have to eat all of it. And right. you got to be ready for that because it's, it's tough. So I went to my mom. I had her tell me her version of my story is about an app, two hours of crying. It was heavy. Wow. But one of the most impactful things she told me was her version of my overdose, one of my overdoses. And it was the worst because my version is I go to a friend's house. Um, they don't know that I use heroin. They know that there's something wrong with me, right? <laughs> But yeah. I, they don't know that I do heroin. I shoot up in the bathroom and I wake up four days later in the, in, uh, in the hospital. I hear, I ask the nurse, she says that I overdosed and uh, I'm like, wow, you know, and I, and I take a few bites of the mashed potatoes next to my bed that they left. They left food there. I grabbed the phone. I called my mom, like, and my mom didn't answer the phone. And I left her a mean message saying like, mom, you never, you're never there for me. Right. This is why, mom, you're always there for TJ or Wade or and I name my other brothers that I feel like she spends gives more attention than me. I'm freaking 33 and I'm telling my mom that she needs to give me more attention than my brothers. Right. And so and and then I and, you know, and I, you know, tell you, you know, how terrible of a mom she is. And I hang up the phone. I leave there. This is in Vegas. I leave the hospital and within an hour I'm back by Jerry's Nugget shooting up again. Wow. That's my version of an overdose. My mom's version, she gets a call from my friend uh, B, whose house I was, saying the grand overdose, and it's bad. I guess that they had to bring me back a couple times. And my mom was sitting in this hospital for four days watching her son die. And then I call her and tell her what a terrible mom she Wow. So when she told me that, real, like... You know, it's, it's, it's hard to see the picture when you're in the frame. Mm-hmm. So when she tells me these things, it just knocks me right out of the frame. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, cause you don't, we don't realize how much damage we do, you know? And so after, after that happened, after talking to her and hearing that, I was like, that's it. That's it. I'm going to do as, um, <clears throat> as much as I can to help. Yeah. Wow, what a yeah. powerful story. And it is so true to try and look at it through someone else's eyes and to be able to hear their version of your story. That's that's really powerful. Oh yeah. Um so so you started you you moved you moved to Reno. Yeah. Started a new life there. Um and then let's I mean talk about your life and then the decision to start Karma Box. 
So I started working in sober living and that wasn't panning out. I didn't, I, my values weren't aligned with the, the owner of the company I was working for. Um, and so I quit. And when I quit, I spent about a month looking for work. And me and my son actually had to go, we're going to move into the shelter. But we got lucky. A guy like you see me speak somewhere, reached out and was like, hey, man, I want you to come work for me. I'm like, yeah, absolutely, man. You know, and he was like, but I don't have a position for you. I'm like, well, well that sucks, dude. Uh, and so he was like, but I'll create one for you if you can, you know, if you can come up with something. So I came up with this volunteering program and it's pretty much based on that experience I had with my mom where, you know, it's, it's our way of paying off the damage we did. And when you're in recovery, like it's, it's interesting. It's difficult to integrate back into a community that you've been taking from for so long. And that's one of the biggest difficulties with recovery or any kind of transition is that your is the cultural adjustment and how you've, you know, um, the shame that we feel because we did some terrible things. We know this, you know? And so part of that would be volunteering. So I would take these guys out and we would go clean up people's yards. We would go paint walls. We would beautify buildings. We would do all this. And then, then we came up with this idea to do, somebody wanted to do a library box. And I was like, well, I don't remember ever wanting to read a novel when I was on the streets. Um, so what if, what if we put non-perishable foods, hygiene items, socks, um, uh, sunblock, water, things like this in there that when anybody walks by can take it for free. And the community is the one that's putting in there. You know, like we, you, if you rally up enough folks and you sell the, you know, the, if you help pitch and push this culture of giving, now you've got the community getting involved. And this is planting these small seeds of civic responsibility where they're taking a little bit of ownership of stuff. You don't have to do much. You know, you're not solving too many problems, but you are doing something, you know, engaging on a small scale. And then you have the folks on the streets that if there's something in there they could use, they take it. So it was this little reciprocal relationship between those who need and those who are giving. And it comes in the vessel of a box and it it blew up out here. We have in northern Nevada around Reno, we have 60 boxes. Wow. And we don't build the box. so, in yeah. how many years? How many years did it take to get there? 2018. Wow. So about was when we placed the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we don't we don't build the boxes. We don't paint the boxes. We have, the community does it. We just promote the culture. And then from there, I started working at the shelter. From the shelter at the business improvement district, running a, a downtown outreach team, ambassador outreach kind of team. And then I started my own nonprofit. Just first, just doing outreach. Um, by myself in a, in a park. And then from there we turned, I created a program called the, called the river stewards where I would hire guys that are living in the camps that are living on the streets to come work with me for four hours. I'll give you a gift card at the end of the day. And, uh, the, the, in, in addition to getting trash cleaned up on the river, we're also able to, uh, to, um, to get po- folks housed and get folks off of the river and get people employed just from being, you know, build them a poor and staying close with them. And we turned, I mean, it was, it was really successful because guys were like, Hey man, can I work with you? Can I work with you? And the best way to identify, you know, your, your client is to work with them, you know? And so we uh-huh. created that program. I 
built another outreach program. And then we did uh, with another three guys, we called them site navigators. They would just be in the camps working with folks living out there, identifying who they are, what their gig is, what they need to get out. How do we, you know, where do you want to be in a year? How do we reverse engineer that? And where you want to be in a year is a difficult question to ask somebody on the streets mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Um, where you want to be tomorrow? That's, you know, sure. But where you want to be in a year, very difficult, but right. we, uh, and then we created the, built a safe camp. And so we operate a low barrier safe camp. Um, there's, you know, we got these mod pods that we put up There's 50 mod mm-hmm. pods. People come straight in from the streets and we work on getting you employed and getting you housed as it's a performance based too. So it's not like you got six months to figure it out, right? It's performance based. And so, yeah. uh, we house about 40, 43% of the people that come through there end up getting housed. And these are very good numbers. If you look at, um, emergency shelters, low barrier shelters. Is that the and goal have, is yeah. to, is that the goal is to get them housed? Kind of right. So right. this where we failed, I believe, and a lot of people would agree with me that are in this is uh, over the course of time as we've been operating under it only like this housing first model, which is good if people can sustain it. Right. So it's not mm-hmm. what I can give you. It's what you can keep. So I can look at a person's tent and tell you what their apartment's going to look like. Well, now what happens is we put people in places or in conditions that they're not prepared to sustain and they end up just cycling through anyways, right? So we have mm-hmm. this turnover of people getting things and losing things, get the apartment, lose the apartment, get the apartment, lose the apartment. And after so long of doing that, it makes more sense for an individual to be successfully homeless than it does to suck at being housed. And that's where you get the idea where people are, they just want to be homeless. Not really. I don't think anybody wants to be homeless. They're just good at it because we haven't been taught how to sustain ourselves in other settings. Do you know? Yeah. So, so, so what's the goal is, then yeah. of the safe, the safe camp and, and how successful are you at meeting that goal? At keeping them there. We're very successful. We haven't had that big of a risk. I think our recidivism rate is in the low, low, you know, single, um, maybe 5% that come back right to either us or the shelter. But the reason for that is because they're with us in a time where we, so in the camp, what we do is we create a system that models the system you want them to succeed in. So we, you build a culture of accountability, right? So your street level stuff, street level culture, housing culture, and then in the safe camp, you get to learn how to keep the things, hmm. you know, because most of our issues are behavioral issues, you know, yeah. helping right. you with the rent. We can help, we can help you. You can help your budget. We can do these things. We can that, but it's, it's mainly behavior that gets us in trouble. Not the situation. Do you know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. Well, that's incredible. You've also started this program and I mentioned it in the intro called grit. Uh, Talk about that and tell us what that does. Grit is, um, uh, and, and all this is like just from things I know, right. I'm, I would, you would call me a, subject matter expert homelessness and addiction (laughs) sure but i'm just a subject matter expert at my homelessness and my addiction right nobody else is but i kind of have an idea and we can and so that's what opens it up is what i know from myself and what makes it successful is watching other people and learning from folks and what what i found is that if you can like so so let's look at recidivism when people that are released from prison right they open the gates and you're just out Right. When, and, and you're in this world, 
this unfamiliar world. And uh, and then you also look the same thing with rehab, or same thing with, um, you know, you, you get locked up, you go to rehab or whatever, and you're released into this world that you're not really quite prepared for because you didn't learn the things. You're still you. You're still the same dude that got locked up or the same dude that got addicted. If you don't have tools, if you're not properly integrated, chances are you're just going to cycle back to what you know. And um, and so what what this program GRIT does, it stands for Grow, Refine, Integrate, Thrive. It's um, it's We do a wellness class where we talk about goals and, and focusing on bigger picture things right one of the one of the things that uh, i noticed when i was on probation or in a drug program was that um people i would watch guys and they would do really great in the drug program or probation but once the program was over they would be using again be back on the streets be um you know be be, be homeless right and or be get back put back in prison and so i asked one of my mentors, I'm like, why is it that these guys do so great while they're in the program and they fell when they get out? And she said it was because of their motivation, right? When you're on probation or you're in a program where, you know, where you could possibly go to prison, right? Your motivation is fear, mm-hmm. right? And sure. fear is the strongest motivation, but it only lasts as long as the threat. So once the threat's gone, why would you be motivated to stay clean if your only motivation was to not go to prison? Right. And so, and she, you know, and then she said that like, you need to have growth motivation. You need to have something that motivates you. That's bigger than prison. That's bigger than you. That's that, that will outwork you. That'll outlive you. So what is that? And, um, and so which we try to do that with our guys is we try to establish goals. We try to, um, you know, identify where they want to be from now. A lot of times we just think about surviving today because we're in survival mode a lot of the times. And so we'll do a wellness class that addresses that and then we also go to the gym we train in the gym we do boxing we do um hit training resistance training we even do cold plunges now we're doing cold plunges it's freaking <laughs> great um and then uh <clears throat> and then we volunteer then we take them out and volunteer like this is a for anybody in recovery anybody that's ever been on the other side of the law you better give back you don't get the luxury of just hanging out and maybe volunteering every once in a while you better give back because you owe it you know mm-hmm. It's, I know it's, I sound a little aggressive, yeah. but I very, I very much believe this, you know, for in order for someone to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what a great program. What this, what this really illustrates in my mind is the difference between like a bottom up solution and a top down solution, right? And so mm-hmm. much on, on homelessness and, you know, we try and that people try and drive it from Washington, DC, from some bureaucratic agency trying to quote unquote solve homelessness. But the yeah. people who are really going to solve homelessness are the people who have been homeless, who live on the streets, and it's this sort of bottom-up solution. And, and and that's exactly what you're talking about here. That's exactly what you're doing through these programs, yeah. right? Oh, I, I agree 100%. I remember when I first got this job at this business, business improvement district, I had an opportunity to sit like with a lot of folks that make decisions, and it's... Um, it's just interesting is none of these folks have been to the street, have ever programmed before, have ever spent time with anybody like, you know, and then, you know, it's it, it was just interesting to me. And now I'm in a place where folks listen, like, right. I, I feel like now where we're at, we're starting to be more influential 
because we're starting to produce things, things are starting to change. We're not operating with the homeless issue as a situational issue. Like not everybody's homeless because of situation, because of the situational, right? Like the rent was raised right. or your wife left you. Like that's COVID. You know, people are like, wow, COVID caused, oh, stop, dude, stop. Why are other people succeeding then? Right. Don't stop putting it on COVID. I understand that drug addiction got hit. I believe that it's that most of this is because we're we're trying to fix a behavioral issue with a situational model, right. you know. And it's we're we're addicted to drugs, man. We're mentally ill, and it's difficult to identify what your mental illness is if you're still actively using. Right. Do you know? So we could right. like address that, and 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 I. That's why, like, when they the HUD, I just I don't. I disagree with this housing first model. And I think we're putting a lot of money into waiting for people to have aha moments. Mm-hmm. Right. Hopefully they'll figure it out. Put them in a the house. They'll figure it out. No, they won't stop. Like most don't. Why would they? Sure. Why? You know? Yeah. Well, these, these are, I mean, these are amazing programs that, that you're doing and hopefully others around the country are seeing it and, and it's, it's being, you know, exported to other areas. I mean, obviously, why was it, it sounds like this was important to you because you wanted to give back and, and mm-hmm. you talk about the importance of people who've been through addiction or homelessness or, or whatever, or been in and out of the legal system, the importance of wanting to give back to the community. I guess that's kind of my, my final question to you is, is how important is that to it? And then of course I'll ask you how people can learn more about karma box as well. Um, so the giving back portion is, that falls under the help category. Right. And I, I'm going to say some things here that we're, that, and look, if we're going to, if we're going to solve this problem, we got to solve it from all ends, right? From every angle. One of the, one of the biggest issues that we have, I would say that, let me be afraid of this without saying, cause you don't want to offend anybody, but we've identified just from being on the streets and behavioral things that some of the, the biggest issues for homelessness is uh, is homeless advocates. Let me clarify why that is. Is because mm-hmm. um, on the spectrum of help, right? On the spectrum of help, right in the center is a is a is a kind gesture. You make a kind gesture. You give somebody a granola bar. You put something in a karma box. Somebody takes it out. In the under the umbrella of food insecurities. You're not really solving the problem, but you're making a kind gesture when you give somebody a granola bar. Sure. On the other end of the spectrum, all the way over here, this is solving the problem. What is solving the food insecurities problem is, is teaching somebody how to sustain their hunger, how to like feed themselves forever. And that is like, that's like, that's actually solving a problem. That's the best way that you could help. It takes a lot of work, requires a lot of um, giving and doing and all the things, but it, it, it's that's the best way you can help somebody is solve actually solve the problem. Kind gesture solve the problem. Over here, on the far end of solving the problem is pathological altruism, where we overgive, where we condition people to stay put because we keep bringing food to the camps because we keep bringing jackets and socks and all the things. I understand kind gestures, but it's just a kind gesture. There has to be something else over here. When we really, when we get out and we start over serving, we condition people to stay put. Why do people hold signs on the side of the freeway? Because it works. Mm-hmm. The way it works, because you give them things. Do you believe 
that this money that you give them is going to solve their homelessness or hunger right. problems. Absolutely not. It's going to keep them there. Now, let's right. just say, for example, that everybody in the community decided they're going to stop giving at the freeways or on the sides of the road. Would those people starve and die right there on the sides of the road? No. Absolutely not. You know what they would do? They'd go to the services, the people that are providing sure. the services. It would drive and funnel people there. One of the difficult, most difficult issues we have working with the homeless population is that we can't access them because they're not coming to us. Right. The reason they're not coming to us is because everybody is giving them things that keeps them out there. That's one of the reasons, right? There's other reasons, of course. Yeah. We're going to broad stroke it and say that's the only reason. But, like, it's a big deal. And we, as a community, have a role in that. You know, yeah. and... and one thing that we always talk about is that, like, you know, folks are like, but they're passionate, man. We're, we're, we're doing it with our heart. They're doing it from their heart. And it's and your heart's in the right place. And I, I have to say that, I mean, if anybody's ever been in a terrible relationship before, your heart did that. Right. So you, mm -hmm. you might be wrong sometimes. Your heart <laughs> makes terrible sometimes. decisions. It feels great, but it makes terrible decisions. Your heart is what wakes you up in the morning. And logic is what solves the problem. Right. Right. So wow. You have to like introduce those things that it might not feel good not giving a dollar to somebody, but understand in the bigger picture, the logical thing to do is to, and you're better off when you talk to someone on the streets to, or do engage with someone on the streets, just to engage with them, say hi. They don't have to be invisible. Like even right. ask them their story, depending on the time and energy you got, but like doing things like this, like handing out money and food and that and all that is, uh, it's just another way of keeping them, right where they're at, you know? Yeah. Well, such a, I mean, spoken from somebody who's been there and knows how to solve, solve this issue. If people want to know more about Karma Box, how can they, how can they help? How can they find out more? Dude, I would just go to uh, www.karmaboxproject.org. It's our website. Um, you know, I created these programs without really creating a website. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's relatively new. It's, you know, and I've, yeah. I was a solve the problem guy instead of a build the rest of the things around it. So we're learning, right? So we're, 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 we're perfecting it. It's just a basic website. But if you have any questions about anything to do with homelessness, addiction, mental illness, and I, I can, you know, we'll, I'll be able to address any, any issues, you know, cause we're, you know, we also travel around a lot looking right. at other communities and their issues and what they're doing to solve them and what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. Well, that's great. And we'll put that link, by the way, in the podcast and the notes of the podcast so people can click on that website and, and, and number one, learn more about you, but two, hopefully they can, they can go there and help out as well. Grant, a, a, a truly inspiring story, like an inspiration, I think, for, for people on the street to look at you and to see what yeah. you've been through and to say, hey, he did it, I can do it. And that, that's the real value, I think, that, that, that you're giving uh, hope to, I think a lot of people out there through through these efforts. So thanks for coming on and telling your story. I appreciate it. Right on, brother. Thanks for having me. Okay, you got it. All right, thanks, Grant. All right, thank you for listening to this edition of American Potential. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com. 